From MIT Technology Review, I'm Laurel Ruma, and this is Business Lab, the show that helps business leaders make sense of new technologies coming out of the lab and into the marketplace. Our topic today, securing physical assets. Obviously, there's been a lot of focus on the cyber part of cybersecurity, but enterprises also have physical assets, including oil and gas infrastructure, manufacturing facilities, and real estate. And when you throw in mergers and acquisitions, unlimited cloud instances, IoT sensors, and devices everywhere, a company's attack surface can be broad, vulnerable, and largely unknown. Two words for you, hijacked elevators. My guest is Greg Ballinger, Vice President of Security Technologies at CBRE. CBRE is the world's largest commercial real estate services and investment firm, with more than 100,000 employees worldwide. This episode of Business Lab is produced in association with Palo Alto Networks. Welcome, Greg. Hello. So, you know, to start off, you know, it's often said that every company is a technology company. So how does cybersecurity play a role within commercial real estate? Physical security is likely something most people are familiar with. But what about when it comes to systems, sensors, and data? So CBRE has been on a digital transformation journey for the past five years in anticipation of our market changing. Um, In the past, no one thought of commercial real estate as a software or technology company, but we're changing that. Um, and we're, we're looking at what's happened to other industries, right? So things like Uber, what Uber did to taxis and Airbnb did to hotels. We want to make sure that CBRE's at the forefront of that. So we've decided to disrupt ourselves and transform into a technology company. Um, so we're a commercial real estate company with technology and data as differentiators. With all of that, there's a lot more innovation, applications, migration to the cloud, smart building technologies. So our CBRE's leadership knew early on that we needed to have an advanced cybersecurity capability to safeguard our clients worldwide in the new era. So ensuring the safety of our software, safeguarding our data are top priorities for this company year over year. Yeah, that's really interesting um, because you're right. People don't necessarily think about how real estate uh, or real estate company could be a technology company. Has it been a difficult five years? Uh, do you think it's taken folks a while to understand the importance and urgency of this digital transformation? Well, it's been a great five years. It's been a change for them, certainly. But there was a lot of change being introduced by the software side of the house. So changing from you know a, a commercial real estate company to a company that you know leverages commercial real estate and software to run those buildings, to, to leverage the data that we have about people, that's been a big change as well. So they not only did a security change, but they moved to practices like agile software development, uh, mobile technology, and things like that. So with that, the security was just another layer that was added on top of the already existing change. That's why we didn't have a CIO. We had a chief digital transformation officer at the helm. Hmm. That's an interesting um, setup like that, because then cybersecurity just becomes completely integrated in whatever you do. It's not considered a separate add-on. Absolutely. I was actually hired to be the vice president of DevSecOps. 
which was integrating security into all of these agile software development practices. Um, and security was focused on where we were five years ago was very much when you're ready to go live, we'll test you and tell you whether or not you're going to get to go to production. Now we work closely hand in hand with our developers as partners, and we're trying to shift as far left as we possibly can. So running tests and giving them, you know, design ideas, threat modeling, things like that to try and make sure that whatever software they release is ready to go on day one. And just to give folks an understanding of what DevSecOps is, so DevOps is a practice of continuous software development with an IT operations focus, and then you add in security. So then you're actually pulling in all of these um, teams to, to build better software for the company in general and also protect it. Absolutely right. And the key to that is we wanted security to be as, as automated as possible. So instead of, you know, when you think of DevOps, it's taking a lot of that process of building software and deploying software and doing it continually. Um, we wanted to make sure that security was in that same light, that as you got ready to develop software and migrate software, that security was involved at key steps along the way. So I once had a hair-raising conversation with an executive about hijacked elevators. Could you give our listeners some examples of like specific cybersecurity problems that buildings and real estate services might encounter that are different than necessarily, say, an Uber? Absolutely. So hijacked elevators, um, building management systems, HVAC systems are all a concern. You hear a lot about these things in the news. Something that we experienced personally, we were looking at developing mobile applications that you can embed on your phone and then use things like Bluetooth Low Energy or BLE to actually open doors to our buildings. So when you think of physical security, there's a touch point now with information technology and industrial internet of things. So we actually developed an application that would allow an employee to come in and use their phone to unlock a door to actually get access to their workplace. We also built in um, waypoints so that you could, if you had a particularly large campus, I mean, your listeners may be familiar. If you ever worked someplace that's so large that they actually have to give you a map to go from one place to another in an office, we developed what we call waypoint technologies to allow users with this mobile application to navigate between where they're sitting and where the conference room was and give them you know, feedback along the way. All of that is done through Bluetooth and integrations into mobile. And we as security professionals have to safeguard that. So we had to look at, you know, this mobile device was connected to a sensor. That sensor was connected to a gateway. That gateway was connected to the internet. But how did that all work? How did data get in? How did data get out? Making sure that those devices are on separate networks, they're on segmented networks. Um, those are all critical concerns for us. We also ran penetration tests against these applications and devices to make sure they were safe. So we're just looking at all the risks of these new technologies as part of our modern skill set. And we're looking at software developers, you know, they're making these technologies and infrastructure teams that are standing it up as partners to this as we try and secure the enterprise. And a little bit more about penetration testing or pen testing. That's when you're actually trying to see how secure your networks and environment is. That's right. We're paying people to try and break in. Hacking is not a crime. 
And we're trying to pay ethical hackers to break into our systems to tell us where bad guys, real bad guys, might actually find ways to exploit our systems. So, you know, we're, we're really talking about something that goes beyond a smart building. When we look at the um, recent cyber security breaches, for example, the water treatment hack down in Florida, what we see are that uh, the surface area of a building or a company is actually quite broad and uh, may be showing places that are, are not the most obvious places for people or pen tests or, you know, or non-ethical hackers to actually hack into a building or a company. That's right. It's a relatively new field. There are um, a number of great companies who are looking at this operational technology or OT to try and pen test that, find out what vulnerabilities exist. It's a, it's a different discipline. You have to be familiar with some of the controllers, some of the hardware that govern these environments, um, what kind of firmware you know, are employed on those devices, and then what kind of vulnerabilities are actually present in that firmware. It's slightly different than the IT penetration test or, or things that we normally understand as drivers and libraries that could have vulnerabilities built into those as well. And then add to that, there are now touch points. So if you've got a, uh, an HVAC system that's connected to the internet, you know, is the firmware that's running the HVAC system vulnerable to attack? And could you find a way to traverse that network and come in and attack employees of that company? So those are some key concerns for us. So having the right tools to defend an enterprise is uh, also a challenge as security continues to evolve to face various counter threats. And some of that may be more automated, like artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. But what's crucial is uh, understanding your enterprise's vulnerability, right? So the possible attack surface of your entire company, correct? Absolutely. Artificial intelligence and machine learning need large sets of data to be effective in delivering insights. And in the era of cloud first and industrial internet of things, this perimeter that you're trying to gain information about um, is becoming far more fluid. Traditionally, the perimeter was well-defined. It was hardened against attack, but now cloud instances come and go. IIoT devices may show up on your network or be exposed to the internet without much warning. Even in the era of traditional perimeter-based defenses, seeing your company as an attacker would, from the outside in, was a difficult task. Now, we have more modern tools that are not only surfacing these systems in real time, but alerting you to the vulnerabilities that could impact your scores. We see things like shadow IT, misconfigured IoT devices, cloud systems, in addition to a lot more visibility into what's going on in our offices worldwide. Applying AI machine learning to that data set and you start to see patterns of risk and risky behavior start to emerge. Hmm. When you consider outside in, how do you look at that? As an outsider looking into your company and possible uh, areas to exploit? Absolutely. So the, the, the concept of some of these attack surface management tools is it gives us the same visibility that anybody on the internet would have to our company. And it's, it's difficult to see our company in totality. When you think of a company the size of CBRE, you know, where are all of your digital assets? Do you know for a fact that somebody hasn't stood up a website on a cloud hosting provider, say in South Africa, and then used your logo and your name 
and you know used it for some sort of innocuous marketing purpose, but that still could have impact to your brand. Um, those types of things aren't always surfaced through normal tools that we have scanning our known environment. So looking at attack surface management, we go out and we identify all of these assets that may be related to CBRE. Then the other task for us is to go in and look at these assets and actually correlate them with you know, the CBRE IP space. So we're actually getting visibility to CBRE as an attacker would. And oftentimes, you know, these tools are automated. So we're seeing far more than any one hacker would see individually. We're seeing the whole of our environment. Hmm. So this is how you measure your attack surface. You, exactly. you try to find everything you possibly can. So some organizations use this mean time to inventory as a metric. Like how fast does it actually take to measure all of your assets? to do a, a full asset inventory and then compare it to what the attackers see. So as you mentioned, one attacker may only see one thing, but attackers often work as a team, as we saw this uh, recently with the Colonial Pipeline and exploit. So how does this give companies a, a leg up? So it's, it's a journey. You have to look at, when you start out with attack surface management, your your platform of choice is going to identify a lot of assets that may or may not be associated with your company. So the first thing you're going to do is look at what's the percentage of assets that we've identified positively as our assets. The first metric is how many have you discovered? How many have we identified? What remains to be done? From there, we personally moved on to looking at you know what were our five big topics. So things like did our attack surface management tool reveal expired certificates, cloud accounts that we may not have been aware of? Did we detect any malware coming out of one of our points of presence? Um, I'll give you an example. We had an instance where they detected malware coming one of our out of one of our offices in Europe. And so we immediately sprang into action. We tried to identify what asset it was. For the life of us, we couldn't identify what asset that was. We looked at, you know, the, the asset tag and, and it was a laptop, and but we didn't have it on our network. It wasn't associated with a user. And we came to realize because of that, that our guest network was coming out of the same point of presence um, from that particular office. Um, and so that was something, it was thankfully not a real malware incident, but somebody that was a guest in our network had something that was an affected asset. Um, so... Those are the types of insights that we started to glean from attack surface management over the past three years. Now we're looking to get more advanced and look at aggregating all of these things into an aggregate score, much like a credit score. That's amazing. So you, you could spring into action that quickly when you noticed something not quite right in a global network like that. This seems urgent, right? So how do you actually express to your fellow peers and vendors and all the partners down the entire chain and ecosystem how important it is to recognize attack service management? And also, you know, for you yourself, are you, do you find yourself a pioneer or maybe a, a, a parade leader where you're, you're leading the way for a lot of other companies to understand that this kind of technology and way of thinking about security is here, like it's a real thing? Uh, as much as I would like to be called a visionary, <laughs> I, I'm certainly not a visionary. 
Um, but these are, are concepts that have been known for a while. They're just now starting to get um, large, large scale adoption. Um, when I started talking about attack surface management, um, it was not easily understood. Once you explain what it is you're doing and, and the attack surface management tools will actually give you that light bulb moment occurred very quickly. Um, our, our CISO immediately saw the value in this tool, immediately said, you know, we need to absolutely, you know, make sure we identify all of our assets. What more can we glean from these systems? Right. And it was great. We saw shadow IT. We saw cloud accounts that we didn't know exist. We saw, you know, misconfigured devices or certs that were about to expire. Um, so the value of that becomes immediately apparent, but it is something that does take a little bit of explaining. So when you talked about the uh, aggregated score for attack surface management, that sounds like something that is a bit more comprehensible to perhaps a board, right? And various CEOs and other executives. So you can say we're improving or we're not doing as well this year or quarter as we look at the scores in aggregate one by one by one. So do you think that this kind of tallying of, or, or way of, of bringing a scorecard to security will help that discussion with CEOs, executives, and boards in general? Absolutely. It's, it's long been a, a difficulty when you're trying to suggest everybody wants to know, especially after an attack like Colonial Pipeline, could that happen to us? How secure are we? You know, what's our score or... Is there a, a metric you can give me to tell me whether or not I'm safe or our program is effective? And oftentimes we'll give them a, a variety of metrics. Here are all the vulnerabilities that we have. Here are um, the, the malware instances that we've detected and cleaned. Here are all of the security incidents that we see each and every day. But those don't necessarily translate into are we safe? Are we getting better? You know, are there areas where we can focus? So as we look at giving one metric, you know, it certainly helps clarify that picture. Um, and if you can explain how that metric was derived, how it was, you know, a host of factors like, you know, certificates or vulnerabilities or configuration. Um, it's also, you know, what about the aggregate of your application scanning, your, your application security testing. If you look at, you know, we've reduced all of our high risk vulnerabilities from an application security perspective, that factors into it. So coming up with that formula, that is certainly difficult. It, it is something that, you know, is a challenge and, and folks like myself in security thrive on those kinds of challenges. But that's certainly where I see the CEOs and boards of directors who are definitely becoming more security savvy. That's where I see them wanting that you know, metric to go. They want to see a score that gives them a sense of comfort that we're doing better. And this is not something static. It's not something that will always improve because new vulnerabilities, new, new attacks occur all the time. And that score will change. But our ability to see the score, react to the threats, and then keep that score improving is a key metric for us. And and do you feel that boards and executive teams are becoming more security savvy? I mean, it's impossible, right? Not to see the headlines almost every week now of a, one breach or another. But is that filtering through? Yeah, I, I personally know 
you know, for us, we always get, you know, an annual list of priorities that come out of our CEO and our board. And since I've been at my company at CBRE now, it's been our number one or number two priority every single year. Hmm. Um, so it's, it certainly does, you know, is a top priority for folks because they see the headlines and, you know, as any security professional will tell you, anytime something comes out a vulnerability, you know, a zero day, uh, an attack like Colonial Pipeline, we all get asked the same question. Could that happen here? Are we at risk? So those types of things are absolutely prescient on our, on our board's mind. The thing that is interesting to me is the boards of directors now are wanting to bring in members who are themselves more security savvy. And they're asking hard questions. You know, what are you doing about these vulnerabilities? How quickly can you patch? What's your mean time between vulnerability and patching? And, and these are things that directly talk to our, you know, security professional language. And, you know, certainly they're really relevant with us, but they're certainly, you know, more direct and more invested. And they give the board a sense of comfort that somebody is on their side who speaks the security language. I mean, that's what you want to see, right? We're obviously the board's priorities are vast. And one of them is to make profit, but the other one is to not lose profit and a security cybersecurity attack could harm that. So you have to make sure you are speaking the language across the entire company. Absolutely. So, you know, you talked a bit about how attack service management actually gives you this insight to know that one computer on the network is, um, well, the computer itself has malware on it, but it's not hasn't affected the, the uh, network yet. So, are there other insights that you've seen from attack service management software that just surprised you or made you realize how important it was to have this ability? Oh, yes, yes. Um, so like a lot of big companies, we conduct an annual pen test. Uh, is we hire somebody um, from outside of our company to attack us as a bad guy would. And this gives us a sense how far can they go. Um the difference with, you know, actual attacks and these companies that we hire is we give them a, a fixed time set. We, we say you've got six weeks to break in and get as far as you can to our environment. Um, and we give them sort of the, the terms of engagement. You know, you're allowed to do these things, but not allowed to do these other things. In the years that we've had attack surface management employed, it's been great to see these attack, you know, they, they come back and they give you a readout, you know, week after week. This is what we're seeing. These are the things that we've exploited. We're able to see many of the same things that they're able to see. So, for example, this year they pointed out, you know, you've got a website hosted in South Africa. Oh, yes. What can you tell us about that? Well, it's running this framework and it appears to be on this hosting provider um, and, you know, there appear to be no vulnerabilities, but, you know, we're attacking it and seeing if we can't break into it. Is that your IP? Yes. Yes, it is. We're aware of that through our attack surface management tool. We're aware of the application. You know, we, we can't necessarily secure it because we didn't stand it up. It's part of shadow IT. But because we've surfaced that, now we're able to try and find out exactly who was running that website, what they need to do to secure it, whether or not they need to bring it into our fold you know, and host it with our, you know, standard, you know, corporate IT hosting providers, those types of things. So it's been invaluable from the standpoint of, you know, looking at it as a pen test, we're able to see many of the same things that our penetration testers are seeing 
through our attack surface management. And so that's been comforting to know that we have eyes and eyesight into the same things an attacker would. So when you talk about that, how does it actually help your security team be more successful in repelling attacks? How does ASM or attack surface management help mm-hmm. with that? So it started out as we are able to see all of the assets identified with us. And visibility is sort of the name of the game from a security perspective. We wanted to be able to see everything in our environment. Then you take a step beyond that and you say, all right, now that we can see everything, what kind of behavior do we see out of these assets? Um, so that was the next step is working with our partner, you know, in attack surface management, we were able to start it, to see the behavior of these assets, whether or not they are indicating that maybe there's a compromise or that there was some sort of vulnerability. Um, you know, it's, it's a much like emissions testing. So when you think about your car and you take it in for emissions testing, they hook up a device to your tailpipe and they see what's coming out of your car and they give you a pass or fail grade. Tax surface management is very similar to that from a behavioral standpoint is we're able to look at all of these points of presence, all of these internet, you know, uh, IP addresses and see what's coming out of them. And that gives us some insights into their behavior. And then we're taking it a step farther now and we're actually integrating that all in real time with our SIM, our security incident and event management system. And that is monitored 24 seven by our security operations center so that when we see something that rises to the level of a security incident, we can respond to it in real time. Which is exactly what you want to do. Have the machinery do a lot of the heavy lifting and then bring in the humans to um, actually figure out what's happening and, and going on and secure the entire company. Absolutely, yeah. How does the uh, almost ubiquitous adoption of cloud services affect the way that you think about security and attack surface management? Whether it's a spun-up instance or an elevator, it's still a surface, right? That's right. And it's a key concern when you think about you know, the elastic nature of most cloud service providers. A lot of infrastructure could be stood up literally in minutes. Um, and you may or may not be aware of that infrastructure, how it's connected, what vulnerabilities it has built into it. Attack surface management gives us this same visibility that an attacker would have. So as things get spun up, if they're misconfigured, for example, and they're leaking data in some fashion, even metadata around, hey, I'm here, I'm a web server, here's my version, here's my my number, that gives an attacker a host of information that we don't necessarily want them to see. You know, what what type of vulnerabilities exist for that particular web server and version um, and what things could I, you know, expose And that exposure itself also gives attackers a foothold. They can start to scan that particular asset and, you know, look at ways of, you know, brute forcing or knocking the door so that they can actually find a way to come into our environment. So from our perspective, attack surface management gives us that visibility into if we're looking at all of our cloud environments and we can tell them what we use and what we're aware of, then they can monitor those for changes in our posture that come out and look at whether or not we have assets that we didn't necessarily mean to expose to the internet and what we're telling the world through the exposure of those assets. So it's certainly been a game changer for us when we think about how our cloud environment works. And it's helped us make sure that our cloud environment, except for very specific points of presence, 
is is largely contained inside of that private cloud network. So it's been a pretty tough year for a lot of people and a lot of industries, but the reverberations of the pandemic throughout the commercial real estate industry, you know, will be rippling across for years, if not decades. What are you thinking about differently with security because of the pandemic? Gosh, there's a lot there. Um, <laughs> so certainly the, the first thing that came to mind last year with everybody working from home, and I think this will be true for a number of years, is how do we protect people who are now working from home? How do we protect employees that are on a home network with their families and their families may not have the same security tools that we have and you know our assets may be exposed. So we've looked at things like always on VPN, which will protect our employees from whatever happens on their particular home network. That's certainly been helpful. We're also looking at new technologies like Secure Access Service Edge um, so that you know we can try and bring all our tools and technologies much closer to people who would be working from home or working from any location for that matter. And then finally, I think it's put a huge emphasis on security as a whole. There's a lot more awareness of, of things that have happened in the last year or so that have really driven home the need for a good cybersecurity program. So it's had the effect of making an already bad situation for finding really good, reliable security professionals even more dire. Um, it's it's very difficult to find. And their, their circumstances now are different. A lot of security professionals are working from home and they want that increased flexibility to continue to work from home or have a flexible schedule or work from a different office. Um, so finding really good people is certainly harder post-pandemic. And that is, I think, a, a problem, not just for security folks, but uh, in general, as people change the way that they um, live and want to work. So something interesting what you said was just the idea of securing also the home network, meaning the responsibility of a company is starting to extend out past the company's, you know, normally fairly well-defined areas because uh, the reality of it is if the house isn't secured, then the network's not secure and then your employee's not secure. That's absolutely right. And when you think about, you know, we have some knowledge of who are our most attacked people. You know, we, we know some of the people that are, you know, more often targeted either because they're an executive of some sort or they work within an executive, or they're in a position, say, in legal or finance, where you know um, an, an attacker could leverage those positions to commit some sort of fraud. So thinking about how do we protect those folks when they're working from home is a key concern for us. And it's always on VPN. It's been a, a challenge to get that rolled out everywhere, but we've done it in short order. And now we have the same security afforded to all of our employees, whether or not they're home, whether or not they're in the office uh, or they're in a coffee shop. And I think that's certainly mitigated quite a bit of risk. Greg, thank you so much for joining us today in what has been a fantastic conversation on the Business Lab. Thank you. I really appreciate it. That was Greg Ballinger, Vice President of Security Technologies at CBRE, who I spoke with from Cambridge, Massachusetts, the home of MIT and MIT Technology Review, overlooking the Charles River. That's it for this episode of Business Lab. I'm your host, Laurel Ruma. 
I'm the director of Insights, the custom publishing division of MIT Technology Review. We were founded in 1899 at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And you can find us in print, on the web, and in events each year around the world. For more information about us and the show, please check out our website at technologyreview.com. This show is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll take a moment to rate and review us. Business Lab is a production of MIT Technology Review. This episode was produced by Collective Next. Thanks for listening.